So as we move forward in Galatians um, this morning, we're, continue, we're continuing to build upon um, Paul's defense for um, why the accusation will not stick that he simply gave a half-concocted gospel to the church at Galatia. And so the Judaizers coming in can then manipulate the content, change it, and say it's not we or us who changed the gospel, but it is Paul who gave you a shorthand version of the gospel. And you remember he spoke first in verse 10. That I, I have never shortchanged it. I have never manipulated the content because that would essentially mean that I am seeking to be a man pleaser. And I am not. I never have been, and you should know better. That's his first layer of the argument in verse 10. I mean, he, would ha- he says, so much so, if I were to do that, I would cease to be a servant of Christ, of which I am absolutely firm upon being. You cannot be both. It's not a middle ground. There is either I remain faithful to the gospel that has been given me, and I proclaim it faithfully, or I cease to be a servant. And no offense, but... I don't want your applause that badly. That's the idea of verse 10. And then he moves over to verse 11. For in fact, let's say it a little bit further, brothers. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that is preached by me is not belonging to man. It is not man's in origin. And then he goes on to say, neither did I receive it from a single man or a group of men. Um, but rather, I received it from a uh, revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, he's intensifying then this morning yet another layer of the argument of his gospel and its content by saying, again, I didn't receive it from man. I received it by a revelation of Jesus Christ. But I'll go even further. And that's what he does this morning. And the next step of his argumentation is to buttress the argument of the content of his gospel and his proclamation. By saying, again, I didn't manipulate anything, nor am I manipulating it now. And I'll prove it even further by connecting it to my pre-conversion life. That's what you'll see in the text this morning. Again, he wants the church at Galatia to know that he did not receive the gospel from fellow men. It's not simply content that I messed up somewhere. I received it from Jesus Christ. And in fact, I'll explain this by my pre-conversion experience. Even more so, proving it's not simply from men that I received it. Because he'll say a little bit later, even if it were from the apostles themselves, it doesn't matter to me. Because it was not open for discussion. In Paul's pre-converted life, it wasn't simply an issue of good debate. You'll notice he didn't sit down and receive a forum. Let's talk about the gospel and its moving parts. Let's talk about this character, Jesus, and what we all think of him. Let's try to arbitrate between us what we think he really did accomplish and didn't accomplish. What is fulfillment meaning, anyway? Again, Paul's saying, I was not opening to listening to the gospel at all. So even if the apostles decided to tell me something about it, I would not have listened at all. I didn't receive it from them. I couldn't have. I was obstinate. There was no inquiry for Paul. Let's debate this in the public. Rather, there was a vehement rejection of it. Again, we'll see here in just a moment how he recounts that even if the apostles approached me, 
I would not have received it. I was absolutely hostile to whatever they would have said. Not even to the claims of the gospel. I was violently opposed to the proclaimers themselves. Notice verse 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. Again, buttressing the argument, it's not simply from men that I got it. I'll have you know that it's not from men. I didn't receive it. I received it from Revelation 4. You have heard, furthermore, of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God, violently so. And then he goes even further. I tried to destroy it. You see, the history of the church, all the way from this time early on as well as its present moment, the history of the church is filled with stories of martyrdom. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity, it's a, it's a publication of Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary up in Massachusetts, but the Center for Study of Global Christianity published its annual Status of Global Mission, and in it, they estimate that the number of Christians who died as martyrs between the year 2000 and the year 2010 is about one million. And that would be about 100,000 for every year counted from 2000 to 2010. Now again, surely those numbers are going to be disputed somewhere. But the thought that the idea of martyrdom is a thing of an age past would be wrong. But the history of the church from the first century to its present moment is filled with stories of martyrdom. It was the early church theologian, who you probably know this and have heard it, at least at a popular level, if not have delved into it in church history at some point for yourself. But it was the early and noted church theologian, Tertullian, who famously wrote, quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Meaning that persecution actually strengthens the church. How so? What was Tertullian's point? How does it relate to Galatians? Well, the point that Tertullian would make at that point in church history is that as martyrs bravely die for the faith, those who stand, hands and feet bound to a pole with kindling set at their feet and lit on fire, or a myriad of other ways throughout church history, the saints have given their lives in course of the faith. The argument that Tertullian is making, and then we'll listen as it pairs with Paul's own testimony, is that as the onlookers see the bravery and the faith of the martyrs, the onlookers therein, even the haters, convert. There's something about seeing a man die for his faith that moves an onlooker to self-reflexive evaluation. This man faced the fire bravery, with bravery. What is to be said of the surety of his heart and mind regarding the things that he professes? 
So the irony of persecution, that persecution may wipe out numbers, but in its own way, it begins to spread those numbers. But Paul says here, very importantly, this was not the case for me. You see, the depth of Paul's vehemence against the fledgling church of Jesus Christ is well documented. And he wants the Galatian church to see it. If you would, uh, let's take a look at it, Acts 7, just for a moment to see what Paul would be referring to specifically that we're familiar with in Acts 7. Look over to Acts 7. Uh, uh, again, even the, hard, uh, the, the, the most hardened among us, uh, uh, those who are on looking as a man bravely dies for a faith, tends to have a self-reflexiveness about the event. Perhaps I'm, I'm wrong. I see it in the eyes of the bravery of the saint who just died. Paul says, it was not the case for me. If you're in Acts chapter 7, look at verse 54. I'll read through uh, from 754 uh, to 83. You're familiar with this story as well in the stoning of Stephen. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. So you can kind of see the, the visceralness of, the, of their response, the anger in the face, the teeth that are, you know, binding together. They are enraged, verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Now, again, to the point of the hardness of Paul's heart, that I I wasn't simply persuaded by popular men as to the idea of a gospel that I proclaimed among you. I would have never been so persuaded. It wasn't open for discussion. I hated the church. What I received in the content that I've distilled to you is a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. I have not changed the content. I'm telling you the truth. How do we know? You remember my former life in Judaism, don't you? How I hated the church of Jesus Christ? What do you mean? Recall the stoning of Stephen. The witnesses, if you look there in verse 58, they stoned him and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep to the hardness of Paul's own experience. Verse 1 of chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. Again, this speaks to the hardness. that He would not have therein been easily manipulated unto a different persuasion. What he's delivering to the church of Galatia about justification through faith alone comes from conviction not simple emotional sentiment or manipulation for fanfare. 
He's proving it upon the grounds of the hardness of his own heart in the moments of execution, even among members like Stephen, members of the church. He approved of the execution watching a young man be stoned to death. The text continues in verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering the house, entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You see, Paul has exemplified there in his argument for the book of Galatians and the gospel that he has distilled to them was so violently opposed to the gospel that even watching the faith and certainty, if you consider that text, even the intercessory prayer of one who is being stoned to death, a skull being bashed in with rocks, and then interceding on behalf of the, his oppressors, and Paul was not even lightly therein moved to the pro- proclamation of the gospel or the content of Stephen's speech. Martyrs had absolutely no effect on him. It's interesting, uh, as an aside from the point of um, uh, Christian persecution and martyrs, if we look at it throughout the history of the church, how those at that time desired the martyrs to not be forgotten. Indeed, even Stephen, those uh, reverent men, men of dedication, who gathered his body to make sure he received a rightful burial, there's a place in the church who did not want these men forgotten. And yet over time, what was one of honor and esteem became veneration. Much of church Catholic today in the worship and veneration of saints lost their way in trying to maintain the memories of those who died courageously for the faith. Referring to Paul's attempts at destroying the church, one writer mentions it this way. By the time Jesus met Paul on the Damascus Road, which if you're in Acts from 8, we looked at it last week, it's in Acts 9. By the time Jesus met Paul on the Damascus Road, he had killed many innocent people. And you have it recorded there in 8. Uh, of chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, again, where he's gathering people house to house and he's dragging them off to prison and then he's overseeing that which is being done to them. Martyrdom. So again, by the time Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, he had killed many innocent people. He was on his way to arrest and imprison more. Paul was a man filled with hate. This goes to his argument I was not easily manipulated. I was not easily taught a gospel wherein I manipulated it to you. I was absolutely hostile to the gospel and its proclamation. I even oversaw the martyrdom of those who dared proclaim it. There is more to the gospel I've given to you in its origins than simple man-pleasing or a popularity contest. I want nothing to do with either one of those. I'm delivering to you what I also have received. 
Further in the text, Paul explains the power of his conversion experience. Again, tethered to the proclamation of the gospel that he now gives you. These things are integral between the gospel and its integrity and the man who is proclaiming it and his integrity. And he's explaining again, it's not simply by men, but rather consider the power of my own conversion experience of what I also delivered to you. How so? I was extremely zealous for moral righteousness. Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, notice the text. Well, I'll begin in verse 13 as you see the entirety of the argument. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. You know these things. I was not easily persuaded. In fact, I persecuted the church of God. How so? Violently. And I tried even to destroy it. Further to his conversion experience, he says, verse 14, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. Notice very carefully what he says next. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. You see, again, Paul, in other words, isn't lacking in the understanding of the intricacies and the meaningfulness of Judaism. He hasn't substituted another gospel because he simply doesn't understand the breadth, the height, the depth of Judaism and its ceremonialism. Again, he wasn't the absent-minded D student who simply transferred out of Judaism because he couldn't hack it. Quite to the contrary, he makes the argument I was advancing in Judaism. Well, you might not know what they've told us. No, it's not for lack of understanding that I proclaim to you justification by faith alone. It's not for a lack of the intricacies and the highly more nuanced argumentation that I simply must have failed to get from Gamaliel. I wasn't a D student. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. I didn't understand it a little bit, and I wasn't kind of into it. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. In other words, Paul is speaking of his life in Judaism to simply say to those who are on the ground in Galatia, who say, I can teach you a better way. Because again, Paul only told you half the truth. He must not have understood the bigger report. Paul's argument here about his own conversion experience is that I've already been there and done that. Have you heard the the, the really good, crafty arguments about circumcision for justification? Listen, I've already been where they are. I know all about this subject thoroughly, inside and outside. It isn't because I'm cognitively lacking that I simply failed to deliver to you the truth of the gospel. I have, in fact, in my own life, as witnessed by persecution of others in the Church of Christ, I have more vigorously defended Judaism than the current false teachers who are among you. Look over, if you would, just consider Paul's comment that's very parallel to the same argumentation. It isn't that I said to you that justification comes through a faith that terminates on a person solely, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. If your faith terminates upon him alone, you rest and trust upon him for salvation. You receive his righteousness in place of your 
unrighteousness. You are therefore declared righteous and saved. I didn't tell you that because I just don't get it. Look at the argument over in Philippians. He says the same thing. If you go uh, from Galatians through Ephesians over to Philippians chapter 3, look at the same argument as he's making it. Chapter 3, verse 2 through 9. You know this text very well, but it's the parallel argument that he's making here. Again, I, was, I, I wasn't tangentially into Judaism. I was at the center of gravity. Verse 2, as he exhorts the Philippian church. Look out for the dogs. What do you mean? Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out for them. Again, to the Galatian church. No, 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 no. What you need to do, yes, 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 yes. Faith that terminates on Christ. Sure, 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 well and good. But, but, it's, but it, that is a, a compartment There are other essential qualities. What are those? Circumcision. Also ceremonial observance of the law. Without which, which I know you guys kind of don't do it now because Paul didn't tell you rightly. But I'm telling you now. So Paul, look out for them. Verse 3, for we are the real circumcision, the one singular people of God through both testaments. We are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Further, look at this. this. This is what it means. We are those who do not put confidence in the flesh. That's the real circumcision. But then, well, you're probably just saying that because you don't kind of really, you don't really get it. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. I, I, I could say something else, but I wouldn't. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. What about those in the ground in Galatia? Like I said, you remember my former life in Judaism, don't you? I'm not arguing this way because I fail to understand or possess other virtues. He goes on, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Wow. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Hmm. A Hebrew of Hebrews. What is your relation to the law? A Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Look out for the dogs. Because as he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, whatever it was, whatever you want to ascribe to that, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For what? For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, not for man-pleasing, not for followers, not for popularity, for his sake, 
I have suffered the loss of all things. As I look back on them, I count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God. What is the link? Faith. That depends on faith. You see, Paul, as he makes evident claims in Philippians, and he makes the same claim as he's reminding the Galatian church that may be saying Paul just didn't get it. He's expressing thoroughly. He spent years of his life pursuing moral and religious perfection through detailed moral, ethical, and cultural codes. And if you read that carefully with me just a moment ago, you realize he learned but one thing through them all. That is, there is no grounds therein for righteousness before God. Think about your own life. How are you being keen to understand that pursuing your own perfection through legalism will never be enough to commend yourself to God? Feeling as guilty as you absolutely possibly can will never suffice. As Paul realized, I spent years, I surpassed many of my people within my own generation for religious perfection through detailed moral, ethical, and cultural codes, only to learn therein there is no grounds for righteousness before God. It was rubbish. Yet the Galatian church in our text is going down that pathway. Hard fought and planted by Paul, particularized by his direction, they are now going down the path of legalism. Further, we'll see later out, eventually in chapter 3, verse 10, you're probably familiar with it as having read the book, no doubt. Chapter 3, verse 10, he then thunders this comment. For I'll just say it this way, he says, for all who rely, for every one of us, any one of us, for all who rely on the works of the law, that is, Someone who is going to submit that data as grounds for commendation unto God. What what, what will you rely on? My performance. Paul says, for anyone who would do such a move, who who would seek to produce such a treasure before God, is under a curse. Because, as he says elsewhere, by the law... No one will be justified. Universal negative, not a single one. Again, this is what Paul discovered by the grace of Christ that day on the road to Damascus. And he is urging the Galatians through this particular text, and we'll see throughout the book, to move from Moses to Christ, not from Christ back to Moses but that a gospel people, the people of God today, would be a people of passive righteousness. That we receive the righteousness of another. We're not people out 
producing righteousness that commends us to God. He's urging the church of Galatia. No, we, we get some of that, but then we're going back to Moses. No, 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 progressive revelation is working forward this way. You're going against the grain. You're going from Christ to Moses. Go from Moses to Christ, as Paul declares he himself has done that day on the Damascus Road. Luther comments about these two forms of righteousness, that of active, where we are producers, and that of passive, wherein the empty vessel of faith receives the righteousness of another. Luther makes this comment, if we cannot distinguish between these two kinds of righteousness, okay, I'm commending this to you in your categorizing of righteousness in your own life. If we cannot distinguish between these two kinds of righteousness, what we call active self-righteousness and passive received righteousness, if by faith we do not take hold of Christ, who is sitting at the right hand of God, who is our life, who is our righteousness, then we are under the law and not under grace. And Christ is no longer a savior. He is a lawgiver. This is the argument that Paul is making. That we receive Christ as a savior. We don't seek to outperform him as a lawgiver. But notice how he explains that coming to know such a knowledge of the gospel of grace. And this is why we looked at the picture of the martyrdom of Stephen in the book of Acts. It wasn't logic that persuaded Paul. It wasn't the great rhetoricians of the church early on. that It was Peter who then preached a sermon. And I was finally dumbfounded by its logic and its rhetorical persuasion. Again, it wasn't any of these things. This is not how I received or was transformed by the gospel. It wasn't how I came to a true knowledge of grace. Because to arrive at a true knowledge of grace, to truly receive Christ as he has freely offered to you in the gospel, is beyond human power and thought. This is the mystery of divine election. This is the work we attribute All glory alone to God for his decrees. Whereby he uses the instrument of preaching to gather his people in. Certainly in the crafting of sermons and the persuasion of evangelism as the book was offered earlier, and we recommend you get those, to- those copies by Rico Tyson. The idea of evangelism, certainly it needs to be persuasive. We need to do our best job rhetorically to help and to cause logic hooks to appear and them to be able to categorize and hang things on, to be relational in our polemics. But whether it's with your own children, whether it's with your neighbor, whether it's with a member of the church, Each of us realize being transformed by the gospel of grace is something that is beyond human power and thought. 
Look at verse 15 and 16 as he speaks of the power of his own conversion experience. So here he was, zealous, not kind of, sort of, or out of the loop. No, I was at the center of gravity in Judaism. I was so extremely zealous for it. I was lost. Verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born. Do you see Paul's conversion power? He is being acted upon by the great Savior and initiator. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, when he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him Among the Gentiles, I want you to know, brothers, again, I did not immediately consult with anyone. You see, Paul acknowledges that even though he had bound himself for years to violent hatred, Extreme zeal in utter ignorance. Though he had bound himself for years to persecuting the church. I mean, if you recall, back when in in, in chapter 9, if we were to go there, we don't have time as we wind down our time together. But in Acts 9, you remember Jesus saying to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Again, think of that. A direct assault against the Savior. You're persecuting me, Saul. And here Paul acknowledges that even though he had indeed bound himself for years to violent hatred, extreme zealous and ignorance against the church of Christ, against Christ himself, he declares here in verse 15, grace was not, however, bound by my sin. Think of that in your own conversion experience. Though you may bind yourself for years, poor habits, then create poor character, actions of violence, thoughts of hatred, a lack of overall integrity and ethical purity. Though you have bound yourself for years to sin, grace is not bound by that same sin. I want you to notice it very carefully as we close our time together in the argument in the text. Notice it very carefully with me in the text. Verse 14, I'll read into 15. See when grace arrested Paul's soul. Verse 14. And I was advancing. Think of it uh, kind of on a continuum. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he was pleased to reveal himself to me 
in order that I might preach the gospel among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Did you see? Paul was in the midst of extreme zeal for the traditions of his people, and it was in the midst of his sin that God showed grace to Paul. He didn't first, first convert, modify his behavior, and therein, after having cleansed himself, brought himself to God and was therein saved. Paul says, it was in the midst of my zeal where God was pleased to reveal his grace to me. The question we conclude our time with is, upon what grounds? This is the question the Church of Galatia may be wanting to ask after they read the letter. Upon what grounds, Paul? If it wasn't upon the grounds of your moral, ethical, and cultural lawfulness, if it wasn't upon your own purity, then upon what grounds did God issue redemption? The answer is upon the grounds of his own good pleasure. You see, this is grace. That whatever sinful barriers you have built in your life, I want you to hear this last concluding piece. This is what Paul commends to you in his own conversion testimony. Whatever sinful barriers you have built in your life, these cannot and will not nullify God's predetermined grace in your life. So the writer of Hebrews says this, Today, if you hear his voice, enter into his rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word We thank you for this letter to the church of Galatia. We thank you for your predetermined act, your predetermined will to save a people from their sins. I pray that today, here at Redeemer Gathered, our people once again in need. I pray that you'll give them a gift of faith and repentance to be renewed, to be rescued, to come needy. For the saints, let them also come needy. Not wait, not navel gaze, not feel a sense of we must pay our own penitence privately in our own conscience before we can appeal to the throne of grace. But let them hear and see Paul receive such grace in the moments of his greatest hatred and zeal against you. So Lord, let the church rise up through such a text to come to you, knowing you are full of grace, truth, to give joy and peace to the conscience. We give all honor and glory to Christ, our Savior, that we have moved indeed from the law of Moses to the grace of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.